0: Hi listeners, it's Dr. David Kipper. Before we get started, I wanted to share an update about our show. Today's episode will unfortunately be the last for medical murders. For the past two years, we have had the most incredible time bringing you these fascinating profiles and we can't thank you enough for joining us. I'd also like to thank my terrific co-host, Alistair, our talented team who helped make this show possible each week, and all the wonderful fans who have reached out over the years. Your support has touched us all, and we sincerely appreciate it.
1: Listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of slavery, racism, and medical experimentation. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. On a sunny September day in 2016, organizers gathered in front of a statue in East Harlem, just outside of Central Park. The day's event was formed at the intersections of art and social justice, all in the name of reproductive rights. Two demonstrators stood before the crowd and introduced themselves, Their names were Autumn Robinson and Raviance Bermay. Robinson and Bermay beckoned the crowd to move closer to read the poster mounted on the Browns' figure behind them. It said, not our statue. Another speaker named Marina Ortiz stepped forward and declared, this is not our statue, but this is our community. Today, we are here to reclaim this space and to honor our ancestors. Audience members clapped and cheered. Over the next hour, performance artists and poets spoke about America's history of medical brutality. They chanted at those passing by, urging pedestrians to say her name. Through a megaphone, three names filled the air. Betsy, Lucy, and Anarka. This is Medical Murders, a Spotify original from Parcast. For decades, thousands of medical students have taken the Hippocratic Oath. It boils down to do no harm. But a closer look reveals a phrase much more interesting, I must not play at God. However, some doctors break that oath, choosing to play God with their patients, deciding who lives and who dies. Each week on Medical Murders, we'll investigate those who decided to kill. We'll explore the specifics of how they operate, not just on their patients, but within their own minds, examining the psychology and neurology behind heartless medical killers. I'm Alastair Murden, and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, MD. Hi
0: everyone, I'm Dr. Kipper, and I'm looking forward to offering Alastair some medical insight into our concluding episode of Dr. J. Marion Sims. With honors under his name, an early advocate for women's health, and an innovator for surgeons, we remain conflicted whether or not Dr. Sims will actually be remembered as a hero.
1: You can find episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our final episode on Dr. J. Marion Sims, a 19th century doctor who performed medical experiments on enslaved women and infants. Last week, we explored how Sims rose to prominence and how his peers turned against him once they realized how deranged and deadly his procedures were. This week, we'll hear how his career took him to New York City as we follow the legacy he established there. We'll also meet the present-day advocates who fought to reclaim history by bringing Sims' crimes to light. All this and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by
2: Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. New season out on Spotify soon.
1: The year was 1848. A young woman named Anaka walked into an operating room carrying a box of surgical tools. This time, Anaka would be standing on the other end of the scalpel. Usually, she was the patient. Her so-called doctor was a man named James Marion Sims, over the last two years, he'd become the temporary enslaver of Anaka as well as several other women. He performed cruel medical experiments on all of them. Each of the women suffered from a condition called vesicovaginal fistulas, where a tear between the bladder and vagina caused excruciating pain and sometimes incontinence. At the time, there was no cure for VVF, so Sims resolved to get famous by finding one. By now, Sims had performed multiple operations on these three women as well as others, most of whom he kept captive in his backyard hospital in Montgomery, Alabama. At the time, it wasn't uncommon for enslaved people to be subjected to medical testing. That's likely why Sims got away with his cruel and reckless experiments without repercussions for so long. But when Sims repeatedly failed to cure the women, his team of white male medical professionals had had enough. The same women found themselves under his knife time and time again without any improvements. In fact, it's more likely that most of the women's health declined. And since there's little to no detail on some of them, it's possible one or two may have even died under his care. Seeing this, Sims' colleagues were starting to realize how inhumane his methods truly were. Many of them finally renounced Sims and left him to fend for himself. But a staff shortage didn't stop him from moving forward with his work. Instead, he found someone else to hold the women down. The patients themselves which is how, on this particular day, Anarka found herself standing beside Sims while another enslaved woman lay upon his operating table. It's unclear how much training Sims had given Anarka, but she probably shook in horror as she was forced to hand Dr. Sims his blade and watched Sims make his first incision. The woman on the table thrashed in pain as Anarka reluctantly held her down likely apologizing under her breath.
0: I can only imagine how difficult physically, mentally, and emotionally this must have been for Anarka. Luckily, today, surgical assistants are well-trained before ever entering the operating room. More importantly, they're not forced into the work like Anarka was. Surgical assistants are trained in tasks that help surgeons and surgical teams handle medical equipment and instruments, holding incisions open, closing them up and stopping bleeds. To do this job against one's will would be beyond torture, and knowing each other's pain firsthand must have been traumatizing for Anarka and the other women involved.
1: The women also had to watch each other suffer after each procedure. Not only did Sims constantly fail to close the vaginal tears successfully, his operations often resulted in inflammation and infections. Sims wrote that anarchist surgeries usually led to a swollen urethra, allowing a thick mucus to form in the urine. He hoped that if he could cure the infections or prevent them altogether, he might be able to get the women to heal properly. In his book, Sims said he tested a different method with each surgery. One of those techniques involved using silk sutures, which were common at the time. But while they successfully stitched the tears, he wondered if they might be causing the inflammation that prevented the wound from healing.
0: Sims was actually onto something. Silk sutures are still used today, but they're not ideal for this kind of surgery. The reason they cause inflammation is because they're structurally braided, which allows for bacteria and debris to collect and this irritates or inflames the tissues and the surrounding wound. Of course, Sims likely didn't know the science of this at the time. He was probably going
1: by trial and error. Still, the idea excited him, and he considered what he would use as a new material for the sutures. As usual, Sims went back to the drawing board, eager to resolve this issue himself. This time, he was aided by mere coincidence. One afternoon, Sims was headed to his office when he spotted a brass wire on the ground. He picked it up and inspected it. It was durable, but thin. Perhaps thin enough to stitch a wound after surgery. He promptly made his way to a jeweler and requested a wire just as thin, but made of silver instead of brass. He reasoned that silver could stay in the body longer without poisoning the tissue. The jeweler obliged. Once the wire was ready, it was time for Sims to put his latest hypothesis to the test. And this stroke of genius sent his career skyrocketing. Coming up, Anarka goes under the knife for the last time. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Throughout much of the 1840s, Dr. J. Marion Sims searched for a cure for vesicovaginal fistulas while operating out of his home in Montgomery, Alabama. According to his autobiography, it was around 1849 when he happened upon a new material for stitching sutures, silver wire. The material was more sterile and less porous, so he may have found it easier to handle and thought it had a lower risk of infection. He decided one of the women he'd enslaved, Anarka, would be the first person he'd test this method on, making this her 30th surgery. This time was likely no different than before. Sims probably forced his other patients to hold Anaka down. Then, once his operation was finished and the silver suture was administered, he placed Anarka on bed rest. He applied a catheter to monitor any infections in her urine, then... He left her bedside without a thought for her comfort. Time would present the results. We have no way of knowing for sure, but it's likely the other women stayed close to Anarka, comforting her while she recovered. And while much of their story is unjustly lost to time, it's possible they were the ones who were ultimately keeping each other alive. According to the International Center for Jefferson Studies and the College of Charleston's Low Country Digital History Initiative, African people brought several traditional forms of healing with them to America. Tinctures and herbal medicines were a common go-to for blood cleansing or pain relief. Women, in particular, were well-versed in holistic reproductive remedies. These treatments were passed down through generations, But, as enslaved families were forcibly separated, many of those traditions got lost. And, now in a new environment, many of the herbs and natural ingredients they'd used previously were hard to get a hold of. But they adapted, modifying recipes to the best of their ability, and they usually applied them without an enslaver's knowledge. It's possible Sim's patients also found a way to take care of each other when he wasn't looking. Though, Dr. Sims took all the credit. That was certainly the case when he examined Inarka the day after her surgery. After looking at her catheter, he was pleasantly surprised to find her urine was, quote, clear as spring water. When it comes to repairing VVFs,
0: a patient's urine is a good way to check for any resulting infections. Clear urine indicates a clean urinary tract and is a good sign that there's no bleeding or contamination in the bladder from the operation. Also, to build on our suturing discussion, silver would have been better than silk here because silver sutures are non-absorbable, meaning they don't accumulate
1: dirt or bacteria in the same way. With Anarka's urine clear, her catheter was soon ready to be removed. Now Sims could take a closer look at the wound itself. Sims brought Anarka into the examination room. He placed her on her side and inserted a speculum. What he saw elated him. Anarka showed no signs of infection. On top of that, he claimed that her fistula was actually healing. After 30 surgeries, it appeared Anaka was finally on the road to recovery. According to his own account, Sims used the same method on Betsy and Lucy over the next two weeks, also to positive results. Perfecting a surgical cure
0: for vesicovaginal fistulas was a turning point in gynecological care. In regard to SIMS, modern-day VVF repairs still incorporate his ideas of continual post-operative bladder drainage, as well as the use of aseptic strips and suturing. Although silver hasn't been used for some time, the idea to employ a sturdy, non-absorbable material was very clever. These discoveries had lasting effects in the field,
1: and in no small part, thanks to the courageous patients. Unsurprisingly, Sims shared none of the recognition with the women who made the discovery possible. As the New York Historical Society explains, they returned to their previous enslavers to continue working. Assuming most of the women had come to Sims from different locations, it's also possible they never saw each other again. As for Sims, he published a paper about his success in treating VVFs in 1852. Never once in that paper does he mention his use of enslaved women as subjects. In fact, quite the contrary. The accompanying illustrations showed him performing surgery on white patients. Women who were modestly covered and not displayed in front of a dozen men as Anaka, Betsy and Lucy were. They even showed a white nurse assisting him. Sims likely rewrote history to protect his own image. While slavery was still alive and well in Alabama at the time, it was causing conflict in other parts of the nation. Sims wanted global fame and probably knew he wouldn't get it if half the country stood firmly against his methods. But he wasn't fooling everybody. Modern-day journalist Harriet A. Washington discovered one of Sims' protégés, a man named Nathan Bozeman, knew the truth. He claimed less than half of Sims' patients were ever cured. In fact, Sims never spoke of what happened to the other patients outside of Anaka, Betsy and Lucy. Bozeman also suggested Sims caused a VVF in a nine-year-old enslaved girl during an unrelated surgery. However, Sims denied Bozeman's claims, and the allegations had little to no effect on his career. Rather, the opposite happened. Following the success of his silver suture method, Sims' career skyrocketed. And in 1853, after a malarial infection forced him to reconsider his life in the South, he decided, where better to take his next steps than the booming metropolis of New York City. There, he quickly made new contacts and became acquainted with other surgeons of his caliber, namely Dr. Valentine Mott and Dr. Gurdon Buck. Sims claimed he taught Dr. Mott how to make VVF repairs and guided Dr. Buck on the use of silver sutures for a different procedure. By the looks of it, Sims was receiving lots of positive attention mentoring many top doctors in the city. But he was less than happy to hear Buck and Mott were performing VVF surgeries in their hospitals without acknowledging his contributions. He said, quote, As soon as the doctors had learned what they wanted of me, they dropped me. After this, Sims found it difficult to advertise himself as unique If patients knew their primary, trusted doctors could perform the operation, why would they ever venture to a stranger? That's when Sims came up with an idea. Instead of competing with doctors at existing infirmaries, he'd open his own hospital. One made exclusively for women. Nothing like it existed in the nation. Sims shared the idea with Dr. Mott, who was perhaps one of the most prestigious surgeons in the area at the time. Sims still felt betrayed by Mott, but he needed powerful endorsements if he was going to open his own institution. To Sims' delight, Mott promised to help however he could. Meanwhile, Sims reached out to another man, Dr. Alexander Stevens. Stevens had previously shown enthusiasm for Sims' career and agreed New York needed more women's health services. But he could save Sims some trouble. Stevens knew of a new hospital already underway and offered to help Sims obtain his own wing. To do this, Stevens arranged for Sims to pitch his idea before his peers at the College of Physicians and Surgeons.
0: It's not uncommon for a doctor or healthcare professional to make a pitch like this in front of a hospital board. Selling a board on something like a woman's hospital today would depend on the community's needs and the attitudes of the board members. This kind of pitching happens frequently now due to our dynamic, rapidly evolving healthcare landscape. Issues like new technologies and staffing shortages have created a need for systemic reform in many areas. Some examples of proposals or pitches today could range from new physician hiring standards, changes in sanitation protocols, or myriad policy shifts in patient care. The inside connection Sims had to the board was a huge advantage. He'd be foolish not to take the
1: opportunity. There was just, One problem. Sims was terrified of public speaking. Stevens told him not to be absurd. Everything would go just fine. But Sims couldn't stomach the thought. He flat out rejected the offer, hoping Dr. Mott's help would prove just as valuable. Afterwards, he went to Mott to discuss his plans further. He likely entered the room with his head held high, ready to gain new glory. But Mott's tune had changed. This time, he shut down Sims' excitement with his own hesitations. He told the Southern doctor that, after thinking things through, opening a women's hospital was a Herculean undertaking. Sims shouldn't even bother trying. Sims left feeling mortified and disappointed. Afterwards, the stress seemed to worsen his health. Compounded with his inability to find work and what he described as a bout of melancholy, Sims regretted ever moving to New York. Two months later, he mustered the endurance to keep going. He conquered his fear of public speaking and went back to Dr. Stevens. He hoped it wasn't too late to accept his original offer. Stevens appeared delighted to see him. He'd been telling others how impressed he was by Sims. But Stevens had to be honest. Over the last couple of months, he'd come to realize Sims was rather disliked throughout New York. Even though he personally believed in Sims, he couldn't sully his own reputation by endorsing him. In his book, Sims doesn't explain why he thought he was so unpopular... Since it's possible no one knew the full details about his sordid past there at the time, perhaps it was just his attitude and unwillingness to share his discoveries with other doctors. Either way, Sims told Stevens he completely understood. He even thanked him for his honesty. The two men parted on good terms and Sims returned to his career, which at this point was floundering. Sims was no longer making much money, he and his wife had become seriously concerned for their livelihood. In his book, Sims complained about having to send their children to public school as he watched his wife cut up her new fine dresses to give the kids something to wear. Eventually, his living situation in New York became untenable. Sims was forced to rent out his New York apartment and his family relocated to the building's third floor. For Sims, this was a massive downgrade. But he wasn't about to accept these circumstances as his fate. Coming up, Dr. J. Marion Sims takes New York by storm, but dark clouds gather over his legacy. Now, back to the story. In the early 1850s, Dr. J. Marion Sims seemed to lose all hope of opening a women's hospital. He believed his bad reputation had temporarily ruined his chances of success, so he and his family rented out their New York City apartment, hoping things would blow over. After what he described as, quote, one whole year of misery, Sims' friend introduced him to someone that could help his floundering career an investor named Henry L. Stewart. Sims told Stewart his story starting with his days in Alabama. Chances are he left out all the insidious details of his early work, as well as any patients who might have died under his care. Because Stewart left inspired. Without hesitation, Stewart coordinated a media push and a medical lecture for Sims, who by now had realized the promotional value of public speaking. Through these events, Sims assembled a board of trustees for his hospital, which included his old confidant, Dr. Mott. Sims was on the precipice of his former glory. The board was composed of a few men, all of whom were doctors, but apparently, He had little hope of building a successful hospital with these men alone. That's when Stuart swooped in, saving the day yet again. This time with a new and improved idea. If the hospital was meant to focus on women's health, then perhaps Sims should organize a board made solely of women. He put Sims in contact with prominent women throughout the city, many of whom were known to support healthcare and had experience opening new institutions. Not only was it great for PR, Sims figured these same women, whom he patronizingly referred to as his lady managers, could take on the grunt work of opening the institution for him. They even found a perfect location, a four-story house near modern-day Gramercy Park. And on May 1st, 1855, the nation's first women's hospital opened for business. Soon, it was booming. Dr. Sims felt he'd regained the popularity he once had back in Alabama. Things got so busy, he had to relocate the women's hospital to a bigger location. He even expanded his services. Along with offering more forms of treatment, Sims had another revelation. This one, just as dark as before. Fleeing the Great Famine, Irish immigrants were arriving in the U.S. in droves. Sims saw an opportunity to bring these women into his hospital for experimentation. According to author and researcher J.C. Horman, he treated them with about the same care as he did the black women he'd enslaved we don't know the specifics like if any of the irish women died during sims experiments or whether the board was aware of his actions but it's possible sims colleagues just turned a blind eye many might have felt his inhumane testing allowed him to perfect his techniques maybe even grow his success as well as the success of the hospital. And with that success came a lot of fame. Sims was celebrated in the medical community, regardless of his dark past. Sims' notoriety had him traveling the globe. He rubbed elbows with royalty like the Duchess of Scotland and the Empress of Austria. At one point, he was even summoned to treat Empress Eugenie in France. In fact, Sims left the US altogether during the Civil War. His hospital continued thriving even in his absence. But when the war ended and he returned in 1868, it was as if he never missed a stride. The rest of Sims' life was filled with accolades. In 1876, he became president of the American Medical Association. This prestigious organization is still around today with the goal of creating a healthier future for patients. Four years later, the American Gynaecological Society also named Dr. Sims president. Sims likely lived the rest of his life with little regrets. He was proud of his achievements. And in 1883, at 70 years old, it was time for him to put them down on paper. However, he didn't finish penning the story of his life. On November 13th of that year, Dr. J. Marion Sims died of a heart attack. His son finished writing his biography for him. It's possible that's why he was painted in such favorable light. Statues of Sims were later erected in New York, South Carolina and Alabama and those statues remained standing, or rather, looming, for nearly a century. Until brave researchers finally pulled back the curtain. In the 1960s, 77 years after Dr. Sim's death, scholars G.J. Barker-Benfield and Deborah Kuhn McGregor began examining his autobiography closer. There was so much shocking material that by the early 2000s, they'd written full-length books that touched on his overlooked transgressions. But public interest in their research took a while to catch on. Then, in 2006, writer Harriet Washington published her book Medical Apartheid, linking the history of malpractice and experimentation to racism. One of Washington's key examples was none other than Dr. J. Marion Sims. This time, people paid attention. Around the same time, a New York City resident named Viola Plummer sprang into action. She knew there was a statue of Sims on Fifth Avenue right next to Central Park, and she believed he didn't deserve the continued recognition. With the help of East Harlem Preservation, a local volunteer group, she worked to get the statue removed by 2010. They had collected nearly 30,000 signatures in support of their cause. But a petition wasn't enough. The New York Parks Department responded that Sims female clients had donated most of the money to fund it. But one author, J.C. Hallman, disputed this. He said the majority of the donations were actually from male white doctors. The Parks Department maintained their stance. On September 25th, 2016, protesters marched down New York City's busy streets, chanting Anarcha, Betsy and Lucy's names, but the statue still remained. Then, in August 2017, a crowd descended upon Charlottesville, Virginia, advocating to keep a statue of Confederate General Robert E. Lee. The event became a national tragedy when one self-proclaimed neo-Nazi drove their car through counter-protesters, resulting in several injuries and the death of a woman named Heather Heyer. Suddenly, many Americans were taking a long, hard look at the nation's past. That same month, New York City Council member Melissa Mark Viverito held a press conference in front of Sim's statue. She said Sims' experiments were, quote, a stain on our nation's history. Four months later, the city of New York agreed to take it down. In April of the following year, a forklift gripped the figure of J. Marion Sims, forcibly removing it from its stone pedestal. Many hoped this would cause a ripple effect throughout the country, including an artist named Michelle Browder. In September 2021, Browder crafted a response to one of the other statues of Sims, located a mile from the Capitol building in Montgomery, Alabama. Browder erected three metal statues outside a local history center called the Moor Up Campus. They depict Anaka, Betsy and Lucy. She named the monument the Mothers of Gynecology. According to the New York Historical Society, Dr. Sims subjected 12 black women to his torturous experiments, but those numbers could be much higher, especially when you take into account his experimental work on infants. Which is why protesters are still working to remove Sims' statue in Alabama and South Carolina today, including Sims' own descendants.
0: It's important to reflect on why we have access to certain forms of medical care today. There's no doubt that Sims had an invaluable mark on gynecology and women's health overall, but it's impossible to disregard its horrific backstory. It's crucial to honor the subjects of his studies, women like Anarka, Betsy and Lucy, who are the real
1: heroes behind these medical breakthroughs. A poet named Coya Fagan Maples echoes this sentiment in her book MEND. This collection of historical poetry finally gives a voice, albeit a speculative one, to the women who Sims experimented on. Here, characters inspired by Anaka, Betsy and Lucy come to life as Maples recounts their pain and suffering, but also the small pleasures they appreciated throughout their lives. As Maple said in an interview, joy can be part of any darkness if you allow it, because joy is not the absence of pain. Joy is a recognition, a choice. These women were more than their suffering, they were human. Thanks for listening to Medical Murders. And thanks again to Dr. Kipper for joining me today. Thank you so much. You can find all episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. Medical Murders is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Medical Murders was written by Brandon Rizzuto, edited by Sarah Batchelor and Laurie Gottlieb, fact-checked by Bennett Logan, researched by Chelsea Wood, and produced by Joshua Kern. Medical Murders stars Dr. David Kipper and Alastair Murden.
0: Thanks again for listening to Medical Murders. For those who have been with us since the beginning, thank you for joining us each week. And for those who found us later on, be sure to catch up on any episodes you may have missed. There's over a hundred in total. You can also follow ParCast on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to get updates from around our network, discover new ParCast series, and connect with a community of fans just like you.